I'd like for you to turn to the book of James. Now what I plan to do tonight is not really, um, you know, get into the text, but I want to introduce the study, okay? And that's why we uh, have this little blue worksheet. It's to introduce what I'm going to be doing on uh, Sunday nights as we study through the book of James. I uh, preached a series on James one time, and a guy came to paint my house about a week after it was over, and we were talking. He said, I wish you'd preach sometime on the book of James. I said, well, <laughs> I'm just finished. You know, <laughs> took about 15 weeks, and he missed every one of them. <laughs> Now, what I want to, the, the, the series is going to break down um, in, into these messages. You might want to jot these down. You probably won't, but in case you do. After the introduction, the, the, in the first chapter, verses 1 through 12, we're going to be talking about when troubles won't go away. What do you do when troubles come? When trials come, what do you do? What do you do when troubles won't go away? And then in verses 13 through 18, we'll be talking about a plain talk about temptation. And we're going to find some facts that describe temptation and how to deal with it. Plain talk about temptation. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, prejudice is a sin. Prejudice is a sin. What is the main issue concerning prejudice? And when can it occur? When, do you, when are you prejudiced? Verses 14 through 26 of chapter two, 2 is a sermon under the title, You Can't Have Genuine Faith Without Works. Now, if, you've had genu if you have genuine faith, there will be works. You can't have one without the other. That old song, you know, you can't have love and marriage. You can't have one without the other. You can't have faith without works. Um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, bridling the beast in your body has to do with the tongue. I heard it, uh, was it uh, McChaney, the great English preacher who one day he was pre preached a whole series of sermons one week, a kind of revival. This very dignified, sophisticated lady came and she said, you, your robe is too long. And she said, if you give me permission, I'd like to cut off part of it. It's just been a source of, of irritation for me all week long. And so he, he, he summoned somebody. He got a pair of scissors. She got a pair of scissors and whacked off about two inches of his robe at the bottom. He said, now you've got something that I'd like to whack off. Could I borrow those scissors? She said, well, I guess so. He said, now stick out your tongue. <laughs> Bridling the beast in your body. In chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, we're going to look at wisdom from above. And we're going to see the test and the characteristics and the result of true wisdom from above. Who are the wise? What is wisdom? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, how fights are started and stopped. It deals with the open conflicts that exist among God's people. How they start 
and how you stop them. If you, have, if, if you want to deal with this issue of, of how to have uh, good relations with others without conflict or how to cease conflict, how to overcome conflict, that'll be one that will deal with that. I'm going to preach a series, preach two or three sermons on divine healing under the title Sickness, Suffering, Sin, and Healing. And we'll talk about divine healers and divine healing. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, doing right when you've been done wrong. We're going to learn how to retaliate the right way, how to do it, when to do it, the biblical art of retaliation. How to do right when you've been done wrong. Chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, the power of effective kneeling. How to develop power in prayer. And then finally, verses 19 through 20, chapter 5, how to handle straying saints. How to, how to save the saved. What to do with those who have drifted away from God. Now, that's what we're going to be dealing with in this overview, in this study of the book of James. Now the introduction. There are two major themes of the Bible. Two major themes in the Bible. The way to God is one theme. How do you get to God? The psalmist cried, Who shall stand in your mountain? And who shall dwell in your holy place? And ever since man was excluded from the garden, he has had this yearning to get to God. And every religion of the world is a monument, a testimony to man's search for how to get to God. And half of the, and the Bible deals with, one of the themes of the Bible is the way to God. The other theme of the Bible is the walk with God or the way of God way to God, the way of God, or the walk with God. And it may interest you to know, it may shock you as a matter of fact to know, that most of the Bible does not deal with how to get to God. Most of the Bible deals with what you are to do after you get to God. How to walk with God and the way of God. And that's what the book of James is about. It talks about our walk with God. And it talks about how to live for God in a rare way. It contains the moral thunderings of the prophet Amos and it breathes the atmosphere, the spiritual atmosphere of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's not a theological book. It only mentions the name of Jesus twice. It never talks about the cross or the resurrection or the Holy Spirit. It drives home the importance of living one's faith out. Now there is one major question that the book of James raises. He asks it several ways, but it's still one question. And the question is this. If you believe like you should, why do you live like you shouldn't? That's a heavy question. If you believe like you should, why do you live like you shouldn't? Another way he asks the question is this, if you believe the truth, why do you live a lie? Or another way he might ask the question is this, in this way, if you say you're infected with a disease, where are the germs? In other words, if you say you've got the chicken pox, show me the spots. If you say you believe 
the right way, then let's see some evidence of that belief. If you say you believe the truth, then why do you live a lie? If you say you believe like you should, why do you live like you shouldn't? Now tradition is an agreement, I think, or the consensus is that the, the book of James was written by the oldest of the four brothers of Jesus. Really, they're his, his half-brothers. And there were four of these brothers of Jesus, and James was the oldest of the four. I want you to just hold your place in the little book of James and turn to Matthew chapter 13. Now, have you ever, you know, been asked a question, you know, you've been asked a question from the Bible and you know the answer, but you don't know where to find it? One of those questions that I'm always being asked is, you know, where do you find where it tells about Jesus' families, Jesus' brothers? Well, it's found in chapter 13 of, of, of Matthew, beginning of verse 55. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but Judas. Now this brother, half-brother of Jesus, James, was not like Jesus. Have you ever had a big brother, you know. Some, how many of you have big brothers? Do you love it? I mean, especially if you've got a big brother who's just perfect in every way, you know, and, 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 and everybody just looks up to him all the time, and, and you kind of live in his shadow. You, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Jesus was this perfect boy. Now James, I don't, you know, we don't know that much about James, but one thing we do know about him wasn't perfect. We know that. And so he must, have, uh, he must have dishonored his parents. He must have disobeyed them. And there must have been times when James was scolded and James was rebuked. And James received the wrath of his parents and the correction of his parents. But never Jesus, for he never did anything wrong. And he lived in that. And we don't know how his brothers responded to Jesus, but we do know from the gospel that they were out of round with him. They were out of sync. They were out of sympathy with him. And when Jesus began to receive this mounting opposition, some people actually accused him of being in the league with Beelzebub, the prince of the powers of darkness, and so did his brothers. I want you to turn back to the book of Mark, chapter 3. And I'll show you that, exam, that, uh, that passage. Mark, chapter 3. And the verse is 20, 20, verses are 20 and 21. And he came home, and the multitude gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people... Now, my, my, my Bible has a little uh, footnote there. It means his own kinsmen. When his own brothers heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. 
And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebub, and he cast out the demons by the rulers of demons. Now if you'll skip over to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers arrived, standing outside, and they sent word to him and called him. They thought he was crazy. And about six months before his death, when, all, when everybody was gathering in the city of Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus indicated that he wasn't going to go up there, and his brothers actually taunted him. It's found in the seventh chapter of the book of John, beginning verse 2, and his brothers taunted him by saying, if you're really a prophet, if you really are a prophet, you'll go up to Jerusalem and you won't hide out here in the boondocks and these little towns. You won't mind going up to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles if you really are a prophet. They had great, they had, you know, they were convinced that he wasn't. And he was this crazy man, you know, that had these grandiose ideas that he was the Messiah. And at the cross where Jesus died, his mother was there, but his brothers were not. And so Jesus died on the cross in the absence of his brothers. But on, some, on one wonderful day, it's recorded in the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, he appeared to them. Now, one of the things that I'm driving home in my class on Sunday morning is that this basic principle that the New Testament gives us the principles of the Christian life and the Old Testament gives us the pictures of the Christian life and there's a tremendous picture in the Old Testament that parallels Jesus' relationship with His family. It's the, it's the story of Joseph and his brothers. And you remember that day, that, that, that tremendous day when Joseph finally revealed himself to his brothers, this prime minister in the land of Egypt, and that trauma that occurred when he revealed himself to his brothers, something comparable to that when Jesus appeared to his brothers after his death. Now can you imagine that? Uh, the, all of a sudden it just comes home to them that this boy who's been sleeping in, in their same room, eating at their table, is God Himself in flesh. Now that must have been quite a revelation. And all four of these brothers, and this by the way is one of the great, greatest evidences of the authenticity of Scripture, that all four of, and, 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 the, and the authenticity of the resurrection, bodily resurrection of Jesus, that all four of them became believers. And in the 14th verse of the first chapter of the book of Acts, when they were gathered together in the house of Mark after the ascension of Jesus, all four of them were there. And in time, James became the pastor, the spiritual leader of the First Baptist Church in Jerusalem. There was, it was Baptist, wasn't it? If it, if it you know. And, and, and so he, he became the spiritual leader, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. And tradition has it that this letter was written while he was pastoring that church. Now there are two traditions that gather themselves around James, the life of James that are, in, that are interesting. I think they are. In my humble and accurate opinion, they're interesting. One is that James prayed so much that his knees became calloused and hard like a camel's. You ever seen a camel's knees? Knowing this tradition, I, that last time I looked at a camel, I checked it out to be sure. They kneel so much their, their knees are calloused and hardened. And, and tradition has it that James 
prayed so much that he had this callus on his knees and he gained, he earned the nickname Old Camel's Knee and that's how he died with that nickname. A second tradition that gathers itself around James is that he was called James the Just because of his high standard of personal morality. Now it's interesting that when this man became convinced that Jesus Christ was God in flesh, it affected him in this profound way that you are to live a life of absolute morality. In A.D. 62, as at the instigation of the high priest, James was put to death. Now when was the letter written? It's probably the earliest of, the, of all New Testament pieces, probably written in A.D. 40 to, to, to A.D. 50. To whom was it addressed? Now let's look at the text, look at the, the passage, James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. It was addressed to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. It's a Jewish book and it means that it was addressed to fellow Jews who were scattered in various parts of the Roman Empire under this persecution. As a matter of fact, that's the word we talked about this morning. The word scattered means seed sown by the sower. And so it's written to these Jews that God had sown throughout this, age, this Roman world. Most of the readers seem to have been poor and oppressed and they weren't perfect. And some of their faults that James amplifies, specifically named, are these. They are trying to maintain a friendship with the world. They bow down to the rich. They exalt the rich not unlike us. I'll tell you what, it greatly distresses me that we've made heroes out of people just because they're wealthy and famous. Might be the sorriest people walk on earth and we worship them like heroes. It's a shame. They bow down to the rich just because they've got money said. Another, another fault I see is that there's, they have strife with one another and there is a lack of Christian love. Now what is the purpose of the book of James? This is a practical book. And this man has no patience with pretense in religion. Now if you're going to have a problem dealing in Scripture with, with, a, with a phony, um, hypocritical religion, you better check out on James because it's going to get heavy to live with because he has no patience with pretense in religion. And he calls for and honest obedience to God in everyday living. And it's so relevant to modern age, to, to young people. I mean, all he's doing is saying, hey guys, let's, let's, if we believe in God, let's live like it every day. For faith, if it's genuine faith, must be tested and proved by action. James just won't tolerate a person saying, I believe in Jesus. He said, you prove that to me by the way you live. There's no effort to teach doctrine. There is really no effort in the book of James to set forth the gospel as such, but there is a strong plea for reality and religion. And the theme of this book is that the person who has found the way generally will walk in it. Can I say it again? A person who has really found the way generally, 
as a general rule, walk in it. And if you're not walking in the way, it might be an indication that you've never found it. Now there's some characteristics of this book I want you to get. The first has several aspects, so I'll give you one, then I'll tell you when you get to two. Two of you are taking notes, and so I want to be sure that you uh, get this. It has, an old, it has a strong Old Testament flavor. Now there are 570 words in the book of James, count them. 570 words in the book of James, 73 of them are found nowhere else in the New Testament. That means that one out of every nine words in the book of James is found nowhere else in the New Testament. It's a unique book. I mean, he almost coins new phrases. It has an Old Testament flavor. We not only are reminded of the prophets, but of the wisdom literature. As a matter of fact, it's called the wisdom literature of the New Testament. You know what the wisdom literature is? That's um, Proverbs and what is it? Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. That's, that's poetry. Pro Psalms is. Well, we'll look it up. It's more like a sermon. We're still on point one. The book of James is more like a sermon. It's like a series of sermons. As a matter of fact, I think it is. Barclay makes a strong, uh, strong point on this as he shows how he introduces chapter one and chapter two. And what Barclay says is that James preached this series of sermons and, and they took this series of sermons. He didn't have a tape ministry. But they took this series of sermons and they took it out to where these Christians were scattered in the Roman world. So it is a series of sermons that James preached. Probably on a summer night, you know, Baptist church there somewhere. Second, here's two. He strongly rebukes sin and the sinner. The characteristic of this book is that he takes his finger and plunges it in to the sternum and says, this is the way you are and this is the way you ought to be. Third, the characteristic of this book seems to conflict with the Apostle Paul, but he doesn't. Now Paul places his emphasis on faith. By grace are you saved through faith. But James opposes a so-called faith which does not result in Christian living. And what James does is take Paul's emphasis of grace through, of, of salvation by grace through faith and he says, okay, if it, if it is salvation by grace through faith, but the kind of faith that saves is this kind of faith and he shows how it's lived out. He shows how you, how you respond when sorrows come and troubles come how you treat other people, if you're prejudiced or not, how you deal with money, what do you do with your prayer life. He says, okay, if you have genuine faith, this is the way it's going to look if it's genuine. Now James has some values today, and I'll get those, and then we're out of here. Number one, he points out the danger of wealth. He points out the danger of wealth. Some of us would say, well, let me... I'd like a little of that danger. He warns us that there are perils that are connected with being rich, that it's as difficult to, for the rich to get into heaven as a camel for the eye of an eagle. Of an eagle. He, he indicates that, rich, that, that the danger of wealth is that it becomes our God and separates us from God. But there's also, and there's a second, 
he, he, the value of it, secondly, is that he shows us the problems of poverty. And one has to do with what happens in action, but the other has to do with what happens in attitude. And so he comes over here to those who are poor and oppressed, and he says, you know, you, there is a warning, there, there are some perils in this poverty of bitterness and covetousness and envy so that you sit over here and you're oppressed and poor and you envy the rich and you're jealous of the rich and you're bitter because you're not. You don't have what they have. And one is as bad as the other, you see. Third value is that he, he indicates or shows for us the problems of sham and half-heartedness in religion. Problems of sham and half-heartedness in religion, hypocrisy. Number four, he lays down the principles with regard to human relationships. How to get along with people, how to treat them. He lays down the principles of human relationships. Number five, it, has, it contains the classic passage on the tongue. Some of us are going to look forward to getting to that one. Number six, he deals with those who, have, who pass hasty judgments of other persons. Judge, how to judge. It's not wrong to judge. If, you know, it's, it's a matter of how you do it. Let me add one that's not here. It just dawned on me as I was looking over this text, looking over this passage. I want to show you. This leaped out at me tonight. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you know, does it strike you, does it, does it strike you as, as, as significant that he doesn't in, introduce himself as James, the brother of Jesus? Or the half-brother of Jesus? You'd think he would, wouldn't you? If I had a famous brother, I'd certainly want, you know, I'd certainly want to exploit that. Doesn't, doesn't that seem logical and natural? Let, let me give you point seven. The value of it is this, that our relationship with the Lord is not a relationship by, his relationship with the Lord was not a relationship by his mother. His relationship with the Lord was a relationship by the grace of God. And the value of this is that one's relationship with the Lord is the deepest kind of relationship. And that's not handed down by anybody. It's a relationship that's based upon the grace of God. And it also indicates that there is a, there is a deeper relationship that exists between brothers in Christ sisters in Christ than there is between blood brothers. Isn't that amazing? Now we're going to pick up from there and we're going to head out on this study and I hope that God will use it to, to bless your strength in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you've given us your word. And I pray that It'll always be food to our starving soul, light for our darkness, encouragement for our depression, 
strength for our weakness. I pray that it'll be to us, like Jeremiah said, a hammer and a fire to break us, to purify us, because I pray in Christ's name. Now, I know it's difficult to um, come with some kind of invitation, but I've made a promise a few years ago that whenever I preach, I want to give an invitation just in case there's somebody there and God might be leading to make a public decision. And you might want to come tonight, give your heart to the Lord. I've seen people get saved after preaching on tithing. You know that wasn't a sermon. And there might be some who would like to give their heart to Christ tonight and be saved. Maybe you did that in Bible school and you want to make public your decision. Or join our church. If I was, if I was uh, moving in Durant, I'd join this church. <laughs> All right, you might want to rededicate your life to Christ. There might be that in your life from which you need to turn to give your life to, over to Him more fully. Would you like to do it? We'll just sing a stanza or two so you come if we... When we sing, you stand.